politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, our liberty, and our property once again here at CR Podcast. Your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here today, a brand new month, Thursday, December 1st. And it's a brand new month, and we're always looking to learn new things, yearning to strive for new frontiers, new strategies, new ideas. But too many of my colleagues in fake conservative talk radio, or I should really just call it Republican talk radio because that's what it is, all they care about is repeating the failures of yesteryear. Nothing ever changes. Nothing ever influences them. No matter how bad things get on life, liberty, uh, tyranny, art, Medical autonomy, bodily autonomy, culture, security, you name it. Vote Republican. They can't let the Democrats win. But Democrats, but Biden, soap opera, Trump, Trump. Okay, basically I just summarized uh, where, where these people have been. The same losers that were either MIA or on the wrong side of covid when it mattered, at the time it mattered, and the way it mattered. The same losers who were on the wrong side of Ukraine when it mattered, in the way it mattered, at the time it mattered. The same losers who are at the, on the wrong side of all the primaries that I've been fighting for 15 years. The same losers who now claim to be opposed to McConnell when he's not even the bigger fish because he's going to be in the minority anyway. McCarthy is the bigger deal. They weren't with us at the time it mattered the last 13 years when I've been fighting him. But those same losers are all about pushing McCarthy. This is a new thing. They're blasting anyone who wants a change in leadership, and they're using the same old thing, but the Democrats. Somehow, you're going to have the Democrats lose. And this is the idolatry. We talked about this yesterday with the Uh, Republicans voting to redefine marriage, that at some point you have to pull that trigger and you have to use that leverage and say, I'm not going to vote for these people even in a general election. But in this case, you don't even have to do that. The Democrats don't have the votes to become a speaker. It's a lie. And they're pushing this narrative that, well, you know, McCarthy has this narrow majority and you're ruining it. Yeah, and if it would have been a big majority, you would have said he's successful, so you can't fight it. The reality is, he screwed us when they had big majorities. When they had big majorities. When Trump was president. He passed Democrat budget bills with majority Democrat, minority Republican support back then. What's the excuse for it? Some of us remember that. He's not a changed man just because he kisses up to some conservative talk show radio host. That's the reality. But here's the deal. They're pushing this narrative, oh, well, you have these rhinos that are going to join with the Democrats. First of all, a Democrat's not going to become speaker. And if that really would happen, then that underscores our point that McCarthy's allies are a bunch of frauds. This has happened for years. It happened in Idaho. You have all these fake Republicans. And we're like, they're fake. They're fake. We got to defeat them. Like, what are you talking about? It's not true. Not true. And then we defeat some of them. And then they turn around and endorse the Democrats. So it's like, you have to support us lest the Democrats win. And then they vote with the Democrats on everything. The reality is, 
We only have five to seven conservatives in the Senate, and even among them, they're only usually good on a few issues, and then each one takes turns screwing us on other big issues. We have anywhere from 30 to 50 conservatives in the House, a fraction of the caucus. We have only one conservative governor. The party doesn't share our values. None of them are trying to innovate and come up with any answers as what, what, what we do. This is not the time. So what is the time? What is the strategy? Frankly, I don't give a darn about McCarthy anyway. I don't care about the House because it's a lost cause. To me, it just helps the national cause of disrupting this fake party. But it's not like they're working with me diligently to push 20 ideas in each red state legislature. It's not like they're working on reforming primaries. It's not like they're working on even getting involved in primaries. Meaning, it's the same people that barely talked about the gay marriage thing. It's the same people that to this day are barely talking about the omnibus bill. See, this is the thing. There's one thing if McCarthy screwed us in the past, but at least he's pretending now. It's not just a matter of, oh, the future. Right now, McCarthy is agreeing to an omnibus bill. He's not speaking out. He didn't speak out against the gay marriage bill. He didn't whip against it. See, this is the thing. This is what I say. The speaker's race is a reflection of general elections between Republicans and Democrats and, you know, just the general public. In that, I've said this a number of times, the only purpose to possibly voting Republican over Democrat is that maybe, maybe there's a chance that you could hold them hostage, hold them on a short leash, and pressure them, and they might listen to you, whereas the Democrat wouldn't care. But these very same phony conservative noisemakers who obsessively say, Vote Republican, can't let the Democrat win, are the ones who let the Democrats win by not focusing on the issues that matter in the way they matter at the time they matter and prospectively drawing red lines. So, hey, McCarthy, you're going you're gonna to change the House rules, right? No. No. He didn't agree to a single Freedom Caucus rule change. Single one, very reasonable rules. These aren't even right-wing things. They're structural things that decentralize control. Democrats, rhinos, everyone should support them. Not a single one. Did he speak out against the gay marriage bill? No. Did he speak out against the omnibus bill? No, he actually supports it. So you didn't even get anything. Like, you could, you could say, look, I'm going to support him to use him as a hostage. To influence him. Okay, so then influence him. But they don't. That's what I'm saying. If you look carefully, it's the same crowd that didn't care about COVID or downright supported the vaccines, didn't, you know, supported Ukraine and that money laundering operation, never talk about the budget bill fights, didn't talk about the gay marriage, didn't talk about anything that mattered. Because it's all an end to itself, earning millions of dollars in politics in talk radio or whatever, and they'll be able to earn millions of dollars talking about the decline of America. It doesn't phase them. There's no sense of desperation. We gotta do something, something to change the game. I'm sick of these people. Like, let me just show you how bad it is. Yesterday, they had the GOP had a conference vote on banning earmarks. 
Okay, this is a really a small issue, relatively small issue. Earmarks don't amount to that much money. But I mean, the argument is that earmarks are used to buy members off. So let's say you have a bad omnibus bill that you want conservatives to oppose. They'll throw in favors for their district and make it hard for them to oppose it. So that's why we would want to oppose it. And this is something that's a small reform that we finally won during that Tea Party era, during the kind of Boehner years. And they, they adopted an earmark ban. And then under Trump, by the way, they returned it. Then Democrats took over. Now they're going to take over again. So they figured, hey, let's reinstate the ban. Only 58 members voted to ban the earmarks. Something that simple. 58 out of what? 220 or whatever? A little bit more than a quarter. Something that simple. That's how gone they are. On the Senate side, only Rand Paul held a press conference with Ron Johnson and Ted Cruz, maybe Mike Lee, a couple others. I think Lindsey Graham was even there. Talking about using the NDAA, as I've been saying, that you know to block any Republican support for the defense authorization bill until the vaccine mandates in the military are gone. It's not even talking about you know, ending the vaccines. It's just the worst mandate in the military at a time when they're having recruitment crises and everything. Such an easy issue. Rand Paul said he, says he has 20 supporters. So if we could even believe him, it's 20 out of 50. But for something that easy, and none of them are in leadership, not McConnell, he has no problem with that. Nobody has an answer to this. You know, you had um, even this rail workers strike. So evidently, federal workers feel they don't get enough paid leave. They get more than anyone else. So Biden failed to deal with the negotiation, and now he's asking Congress to bail it out and spend more money. Every time Republicans promise to cut spending, but then they actually vote for more. So this is literally an easy no vote when you're in the minority. Yet still, 79 Republicans voted yes. Okay, that's that's a uh, more than a third. They're like that. That's yeah. What is that? 81, 60. That's more than a third. A lot more than a third. But it's worse than that. McCarthy did not whip the vote. It was a hope yes, vote no situation. Even something like that. Every day I could bring you examples. I didn't even get to the immigration bill. We don't even have time for that. But very apropos, because we're going to talk today about big business and woke capital being a, as big of a threat of big government. And conservatives need to now regard big business in terms of policy the way they regard big government. That's the theme today. So they actually have, maybe we'll talk about this more tomorrow, but this immigration bill to have China, India, and big tech monopolize our immigration system with more green cards. At a time like this, the Republicans will pick the worst issue in the worst way at the worst time and screw us with it. Rather than pour water on the fire, they'll pour lighter fluid on it. And, and you have the whip, the GOP whip, Tom Emmer, supports it, is a co-sponsor of it. Now, I don't know if ultimately it will pass now, but a version... That passed the House last year, something like only like 57 Republicans opposed it. 
something that radical, a handout to big tech to monopolize even further our immigration system, but not just with anyone, but with China and India, China in particular. After everything, we realized the problem with woke capital. They reward them. I'm telling you the systemic issues of our time. They're against us. None of these talk show hosts have an answer for this. What are you going to do about that? It's not one or two issues. It's not a handful of members. The entire Republican Party is fake. And I've given pragmatic, gradual plans. But not things that you have to wait 100 years for. Things that we could start now to gradually shift. Where a state Republican Party has gotten better, use a Republican ballot line. Uh, Where it's feasible to run an independent, you run an independent. Where you run Republicans, you have a different caucus. And again, you, you, you augment that by changing the law to caucuses and, and uh, conventions instead of popular primaries. I have a whole article out today on the greater Idaho movement, but it's not just there. Illinois, all these blue states where an entire chunk of the state is conservative for them to agitate and petition to be drawn into another state. Right? This is something if you agitate, agitate for enough... You could push a brinkmanship point where things either go one or another. Either we get what we want or there's so much disquiet it forces national divorce. But instead, what conservative talk radio is designed for is to quell that rebellion, distract and dope up our voters. So it allows the Republicans to continue that racket of having that item choking. We're choking on it. We can't swallow it, but we can't spit it up. So it stays in that painful position in perpetuity where we're left without a resolution. That's where these pathetic people are. They have no solutions. Anyway, our sponsor today is one one of my favorite, a Blaze subscriber, longtime listener, QPGoatSoap.com. Just like we put a bunch of unhealthy, pro-inflammatory chemicals into our body when we eat, well, what you put on your skin gets absorbed. A lot of the soap um, that you use is terrible, has terrible ingredients. That's why a lot of people have these reactions to it. QP goat soap is made from authentic goat milk. Um, And they have men's soap, women's soap, all different scents, Uh, you know, cocoa, pumpkin spice, it smells amazing. It kind of doubles up as an air freshener in our uh, home bathroom, which you certainly need with three boys. Uh, has palm oil with, with it, which is rich in vitamins. And most of all, you're supporting a Christian homeschooling family of entrepreneurs, and it's made by 15-year-old Quinn. Okay? 15-year-old Quinn, as in Quinn Pittman. That's the Q in the QP goat soap. By the way, 10% off with promo code Daniel. Um, This is a kid that represents the future of what we need with Gen Z. Rather than going to these stupid universities, he plans on growing his business. He goes fishing, learns the classicals, uh, you know, Christian homeschooling. Um, Little Grace, the sister, does the rapping. His mom helps him make it. And the dad works on the business side beautiful conservative family out of Volusia County, Florida. 
let's support them and stop supporting Dove and um, Zest, all these. Uh, I, you should see the garbage they put out on Twitter um, with the woke capitalism that we're going to talk about with our special guest. So, again, qpgoatsoap.com. And you could also request um, Christmas gift, gift wrapping. It would make a great gift, a very unique gift. Uh, once again, 10% off with Daniel. Do not support the cartel for your soap. Support one of us at qpgoatsoap.com. So, folks, I, I think just as a good intro to um, to where we're headed, big business needs to be treated like big government. So, in the past, business was a bulwark against big government. You know, rather than government controlling things, you have business control our society, economy, life, and it kind of decentralized the power. But over the years, precisely because we didn't have a free market, and we had this system of tendentious treatment of taxation, regulation, and subsidization, market distortions by the government, the, um, the Federal Reserve on down, whether it's energy and the green energy and this and that, all the things the government did, we don't have a free market, and we haven't for a long time, and that obviously culminated with the shutdown, shutting down small business, which is the bulwark of against tyranny and, and a front for decentralization. And it basically shifted everything towards the Fortune 500 companies. They are now the conduit and the partner of government, and particularly the, the national security surveillance apparatus. They work hand in glove with them. By the way, DeSantis has it right on this. Take a listen to Bob Iger, the new CEO of Disney, how defeated he feels. Take a listen to this quote. Here's a virtual question. Many cast members had wished that Disney stayed out of politics. Will Disney stay out of making political statements? You know, I think uh, there's a misperception here about what politics is. And I think that some of the subjects that have proven to be controversial as it relates to Disney, have been branded political, and I don't necessarily believe they are. I don't think when you are telling stories and attempting to be a good citizen of the world that that's political. Just not how I view it. Do I like the company being embroiled in controversy? Of course not. It can be distracting, and it can have a negative impact on the company. And to the extent that I can work to kind of quiet things down, I'm going to do that. But I think it's, it's important to put in perspective what some of these subjects are and not just simply brand them political. You see, he's like, hey, we're going to put our head down. We're done with this. DeSantis made it clear, hey, buddy, in this state, it's not cool to be that way. We're going to go after you. I am telling you, every other Republican governor opposes what DeSantis did with them, including a lot of these phony conservative writers. And by the way, my buddy Jimmy Petronas, the Florida CFO, just announced a $2 billion divestment from BlackRock in terms of the state investment and pension funds. Um, it's not the first state to do this. About five others have done this, but Florida is the largest. $2 billion worth out. This is what we need to do. And again, we need to start slapping on anti-discrimination laws. We need in each state that the corporations cannot discriminate against employees and customers based on political and religious beliefs. It, the time has come for that. 
If you want to get rid of all anti-discrimination laws, I'm fine with that. But if we're going to have that structure and we're going to have the government literally work with them, that is fascism. That's not libertarianism. And the time has come for that. You know, perfect example of this. Perfect example is um, this article from Wired.com, a peek inside the FBI's unprecedented January 6th geofence dragnet. The FBI's biggest ever investigation included the biggest ever haul of phones from controversial geofence warrants. Court records show Google initially identified 5,723 devices as being in or near the U.S. Capitol during the riot. So they allowed, if you were just within the Capitol, totally did nothing wrong, exercising your First Amendment right, you were roped in. Filing suggests that dozens of phones that were in airplane mode during the riot or otherwise out of cell service were caught in the trawl. Nor could users erase their digital trails later. In fact, 37 people attempted to delete their location data following the attacks were singled out by the FBI for greater scrutiny. Um, Google's location history system is both powerful and widely used. The company has served about 10,000 geofence warrants to the U.S. each year. By the way, these are the same people who refuse to unlock phones of, of real terrorists. And th- this is the thing. So you can't have, oh, companies could do whatever they want. States need to start going after them for things like this. Divestment is a, is a good you know, first start. But we cannot have this. We need to treat big business the way we would treat big government. Punish them. Yes, punish them. And that's why, again, I am all for making certain arrangements like applying this stuff only to companies that are over 500 employers or something like that. I have no problem doing that. Make a certain threshold. I don't know exactly where it would be. Certain anti-discrimination laws. And then I also feel certain regulations and taxes. If I were a state, I would say your business under this amount of you know employees, hey, buddy, you want to open up a small business? No taxes for five years. And only accorded to them because that's what's right. If you have a shutdown and then you give all that business to big business, you have to even up the score. That's where we're at at this stage of the country. Big business needs to be treated like big government. If you are preserving the status quo you are preserving big government. It is an indispensable component of the Fourth Reich, is that public-private partnership. And you have to break it up. But this, at its core, is why the Republican Party will never change. Because they are beholden to them. That's the, that's the big enchilada. Who runs each state, including red states, the biggest businesses in those states? They're all into woke capital. They're all into the green energy. So even the red states are involved in that. They're all into the homosexual agenda. They're all into CRT. They're all into the biomedical security state. They're all into jailbreak. They're all into open borders. Where do you think all these Republicans got bought into uh, criminal justice reform? That was another woke capital nonsense. But I have a very special guest I want to get to today to 
really put an exclamation mark on understanding the state of play in woke capital. So folks, one of the issues we have when it comes to standing up to the mob is that nobody is willing to use their power to just say no. You know, you have all these Republican governors, and I've said this so many times, that are sitting in states where two to one, three to one majorities, the people support them. Uh, Republicans have five to one, six to one majorities in these state legislatures. They could tell the medical cartel, the woke capitalists to pound salt. But they don't. They don't. And, and again, you see from DeSantis, this was formerly a pretty swing state, you know, th- third largest state, lots of urban areas, not so easy for him to hold on. And now he's changed the culture where now they're putting their head down like, hey, maybe we're going to go back to the good old days where we just kind of stay out of this. And I think that Bob Iger clip really is a seminal moment. But that just goes to show that in the areas where we supposedly do control, you need to floor that gas pedal. But we're not doing it. Everyone goes along with this. What's so frustrating is, and we've said this before, you look at this structure, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. That's really what it is. You do have your true believers, but most of these people, it's this perception that everyone believes this way, so therefore we have to go along with it, so therefore nobody will challenge it. It's kind of like special forces. One of their uh, talents is to give the impression in a, in a certain field that there's more of them than there actually are. And that's what they do. They think, oh my gosh, the, you know, whatever the new thing is, you know, BLM, 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 COVID, 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 mask, 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 Ukraine, 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 whatever the new hotness is, they immediately indulge it to the gates of hell. And then, you know, it just kind of drowns out any dissent and everyone's scared to say anything, no matter uh, what happens. But once in a while, you'll find a story where someone does stand up and you're thinking, man, if there would be more people like that this entire house of cards would collapse. And I want to bring you today a very unique story, an important story um, I'm glad to be apprised of. Jennifer Say, she's out with a new book, Levi's Unbuttoned, The Woke Mob Took My Job But Gave Me My Voice. And and basically, Jen was a U.S. National Gymnastics champion um, as a young woman in the 1980s. She was really one of the top gymnasts back then. And later on in life, she got into the corporate world, joining Levi Strauss in 1999. Eventually, she became chief marketing officer and then brand president up until she was pushed out January of this year. And really, she was on track to eventually become the CEO of this major corporation. But that was until she spoke out against lockdowns and particularly she, in her area in San Francisco, was organizing, uh, you know, activism protests against the closure of schools. And mind you, I mean, employees and executives of these big companies engage in activism all the time, and that's totally fine. But here to say, look, let our kids learn. No, that was a, a bridge too far. And she was pushed out. She was offered a severance package, but that would have forced her obviously to sign an NDA. And she said, you know what? I'd rather have my voice than my job. And this is really what's lacking in every sector of politics, corporations, 
and and I want to bring you this story just because it's so important that I think I'm watching even even where I live. The divide everywhere is between white collar and blue collar. And as bad as things are in America, until the Ponzi scheme falls apart, which it will, right now, not even just the people at the very top, but most people who have good white collar jobs, technically, even with the inflation, they're doing better than they've ever done. Um, a lot of them, the the shutdown didn't really affect them. The laptop class of people, and you know, and and some of them might be upset about some of what's going on in the country, but they don't feel it enough. You look at China, and it literally is affecting their lives. It's a full blown shutdown. Uh, Shanghai is the most college educated place around, but it doesn't help them when they're trapped in buildings and they literally can't get food. That's what it's going to take. But right now, people have cushy lives despite everything. And that's how they've bought off enough people. Um, Jennifer Say really is the antidote to this. And I want to bring you her story today. Again, you could follow her at Jennifer Say. That's S-E-Y on Twitter. Levi'sUnbutton.com is where you can get the book and find out more about her. And she blogs at Jennifer Say on Substack. Jennifer, I am so happy you reached out to me and I met you for the first time. What a terrific story. Thanks for joining us for the first time at Blaze Media today. It's great to meet you and talk with you, Daniel. I've been an admirer and a follower. Um, and he, there weren't very many people who um, were willing to speak out right from the beginning um, about the catastrophic harms that would be done uh, through the, these lockdown policies and not just the harms, but the, just the illegality and wrongness of it all. And you were certainly one. So I found you in the beginning um, of that time period. So t- talk to us a little bit about how you arrived at this point. I mean, if, if I would follow your life on paper, um, obviously you're living in San Francisco, you're an executive in a big fortune 500 company, Obviously, you would have never landed on a show like someone like me, who is regarded as a Nazi no. in these in these circles. <laughs> and, you know, you kind of went along with all this stuff, the corporate culture, the social justice. Um, was it really COVID that that turned you around? It's a it's a great question. I mean, I should say I was always sort of a reluctant corporate executive. So maybe that, you know, made it more likely that I would be willing to to walk away. (laughs) Um, It it wasn't sort of the plan I I saw for myself. But yeah, it all sort of came to a head for me with COVID right at the beginning. I mean, I was outspoken, as you indicated, from the from the get go. uh, March 13th in in my city, San Francisco, is when uh, public schools closed. And I had been reading everything I could get my hands on. I I saw it coming. And, you know, the governor took his emergency powers, which he still has not let go of, which is obviously extremely problematic. Um, And I pushed back from the beginning. And I focused my advocacy on children because I thought naively that that was perhaps something we could all agree on. Um, I certainly had issues with all the rest of it, but I thought, you know, I'll stay focused on this issue because perhaps I can be more convincing. Don't we all care about children? Um, Isn't that something we can all agree on and and care about? And um, I just kept pushing. You know, I started in in March. Actually, I probably started in February. It started on social media, but eventually I led rallies and and wrote op-eds. And 
two years later, after just continued pushback internally from my peers, from employees, um, as well as my boss, the CEO, I was told in January of this year that there would no longer be a place for me at the company. Um, but rather than sign a non-disclosure agreement, which I would have needed to do to get the million dollars that was on offer, I, I decided that my voice was too important and I wasn't, I wasn't going to do that um, because what was increasingly alarming was not just the harm being done to children and our, 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 our world more broadly than that, um, but the illiberalism and the censorship and the silencing and, you know, it really is the end of democracy as we know it if, um, if we can't all speak up and use our voices and push back on, on uh, you know, and stand up for the things that we care about. Um, but, yeah, for me, I would say it was certainly COVID that kind of brought it uh, to a head, but it, it then caused me to question everything else as well. So l- let's give some background about the events leading up to you being pushed out at the beginning of the year. So presumably you were, you know, in good standing with the company, um, really on track to eventually be the number one. So did it went, did it go from zero to 101 shot? Did you get a warning? Like, you know, what tipped them off to so, your, yeah. to your activism? And also if you can describe, you know, what some other people on your level were doing, I'm, I'm assuming you weren't the only one who ever spoke out politically. Um, I mean, I was certainly the most vocal of my of my peers that, you know, and I'd had a I was pretty outspoken before COVID. But of course, the views that I expressed were much more aligned um, with the Democratic Party and the, mm-hmm. the, the orthodoxy um, of the left and, and the views that my company was pushing. And I'm pretty certain if I'd been very vocal that schools needed to stay closed or all the <laughs> children would die and we'd kill all the teachers, that that would have been just fine. So you know, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, it was obviously um, about the viewpoint that I expressed, not the fact that I expressed an opinion. Um, my peers were silent. As far as kind of the events leading up to it, I started, you know, pretty early and in, in, in March and was informed by data. And I was, you know, very diplomatic as I and want to do. Women are well-trained to be diplomatic, diplomatic in the corporate environment. Um, and it wasn't really until September of that year that it was addressed with me. Um, I don't know if they'd noticed before that, but our head of corporate communications, who would, you know, say arguably her role is to manage corporate reputation, called me and said, you really need to think about this. When you speak, you speak on behalf of the company. And I said, I don't. I'm a citizen. I'm a mom of four. Um, are you telling me I need to stop? And she said, well, I can't do that. Um, I had no contract. There was no nothing I had ever signed saying, you know, you can or cannot use social media in this way or express your politics in, in this way. Um, and this issue should never have been political. You know, it, it's about our, our kids. I think it cuts across party lines, but I'll just use politics as a, as a shorthand. Um, and so I said, you know, I wasn't going to stop. It meant too much to me. And you know, over the course of the next year and a half, various people were assigned to speak to me. They had the unenviable position of talking to me and me saying, no, I'm not stopping. So I had the head of HR, I had a board member, I had the head of legal, and ultimately my boss, the CEO, who, you know, tends to deploy his minions to have hard conversations. He doesn't like it, but eventually um, he did. It, it is of note that in October of that year of 2020, I was promoted. 
Um, I went from chief marketing officer to brand president. So clearly I was effective in leading the business. Why would they promote me if I wasn't? Um, And yet, um, you know, this idea that I was causing this deep reputational harm and affecting the business, which was false, the business was emerging from lockdowns in a really strong way due to the strength of the brand, which was my responsibility. Um, but ultimately, you know, those conversations were very consistent. You know, every few weeks, someone would call me and tell me I needed to think about what I said and I should stop. And I would say, no, I'm a citizen. Just because I work here doesn't mean that I give up my rights to free expression. It doesn't mean I give up my right to kind of weigh in on the issues that affect my family. Um, and families in San Francisco. And, you know, I was, I guess, intransigent, and I would not stop. And the conversations were unpleasant. During that time, you might find this interesting, I was asked to do an apology tour internally. Um, I had to stand up in front of a few hundred employees. I did not apologize. I explained myself, but I was um, meant to apologize for these stances I'd taken. Um, you know, I was, I was challenged that my views were racist, that opening schools was racist because I wanted to harm children of color. And I did not. And obviously the audience is very familiar with the fact that we have reams of studies on now how, how non-white children were harmed the most by the shutdown. That's the rich irony there. Well, that is the irony. I mean, the San Francisco public schools, and I think this is true for schools, public schools across the nation are 60% low income children um, disproportionately black children, uh, Latino children, like these are the kids that were being harmed. And in the fall of that year, fall 2020, my own peers and my boss sent their kids to open private schools. So they weren't (laughs) too afraid to send their kids to school. But that just incensed me and, and, you know, pushed me even further to expose that hypocrisy because here this is happening on the heels of the summer of 2020 when every company in America is, you know, decrying their privilege and, you know, pledging to fight racism and inequality. And yet this decision is the most structurally classist and racist policy I could imagine, barring black children from schooling, you know, and and so that just when that happened, I, I thought for a moment naively that folks would see the hypocrisy of that and start to push back. But boy, was I wrong. Um, <laughs> it just caused them to dig in even further. And and that's the thing. I think that's what a lot of people are realizing now. People like me used to be viewed as you hate the poor, you hate blacks, you hate this. And it's just like, no, we always felt that that our view of limited government was the best opportunity for prosperity for the most people. But now they see that this class of people had nothing to do with them. It's all self-serving because they, they won't be caught dead being a part of that. Same thing, a lot of this corporate culture, they were into what they called criminal justice reform, which is, you know, euphemism right. for de-incarceration. And the, the reality is we weren't. We said, look, you know, we, we made gains 25 years cut, uh, taking a bite out of crime from this regime. You you reverse it, you're going to have problems. And now it, crime is crazy, places like San Francisco. But these guys won't be caught dead living in those neighborhoods. They're not suffering oh, from yeah. those gangbangers let out of jail. It's on every issue they found a way to inoculate themselves same thing with inflation inflation's crazy but they earn enough money that they fly above the clouds with that they don't feel the pain from the woke policies and this is what i want to get from you who who, you know you were in this culture for a number of years 
And I get the impression that a lot of them, so you earn a lot of money in life, you work a lot of hours, you have to find a sense of meaning. So this is their way of like, you know, feeling, look, I am a good person. So you define it by whatever the new hotness is, the new spirit of the age item. So, and it might surprise you. Like in this case, it wound up being like, you know, lockdown and shutting down schools and depriving kids of, I I mean, I still to this day have to pinch myself to realize we lived through this to take a kid eight hours a day and cover their breathing holes, the human rights violations of autistic children. They did that to people with disabilities. I mean, and and that was that was virtuous, right? Yep. So yeah, where does this come do from? Where does this come yeah. from? Here's what I want you I, to to explain to our audience. So okay. here's what I don't understand. Like I get it that there are certain companies notoriously are in bed with government, the WEF, all that whole crowd, Bill Gates. I get that. I get that the big tech companies in particular. Um, we understand that, and and Pfizer, fine. But it's true of Every single CEO of every single company above a certain size, how does that happen in one generation? Yeah, I mean, it happens slowly and then all at once, I think, as <laughs> things do. I think there's a couple things going on. And, you know, I say this from having been inside the boardrooms and the, the C-suite meetings for, for many years. Um, I think you're right. I think, um, you know, corporate leaders, it's no longer enough to be exceedingly grotesquely wealthy. In fact, they feel guilty about it. It used to be enough, right? It was uh, greed was good and all of this. Now it's not. They feel kind of guilty about it. They are busy, you know, disavowing their privilege and committing themselves to altruism. I mean, Sam Bankman-Fried is a great example of this, <laughs> right, with his effective altruism. And he even said it in that series of DMs with the Vox reporter where he said, it's a pose that we strike so people like us. But it's also a pose they strike so they, they can like themselves. You know, let's mm. be clear, because they start to believe it after a while. They're also getting this reinforcement from their own children. You know, they sent their children to these woke elementary uh, schools and, and high schools and, and colleges, and they, they curry the favor of their children. We live in an era of parents wanting to be the friend, not the parent. And so they are looking for approval from their children. It's not enough that they gave these kids every opportunity and privilege that money could buy. They want to wow them with their goodness. Um, and, and so that's, and, and they do believe it over time, but ultimately They also believe, and this is important, that it is the most expedient way to make money for the company. And they believe these two things simultaneously, Mm. that they are altruists and they are also seeking um, great profit for the company. They, They are attempting to profit off of what they see as universal Gen Z and millennial social activism. They, they assume that this group um, agrees on everything and, you know, Certainly, it would appear that way from the most vocal um, and active set of younger younger folks. And so they are attempting to sort of harness that activism as a way to position their brand to make more money. It's always just about the money. The minute they believe that this will no longer be profitable, I assure you they won't do it anymore. But they still believe that it is. But I, I, the, the, And then that's a very deep explanation where there's a lot to unpack there. 
But what I want to see is, look, you're going to have a certain percentage. The country is always divided. You have maybe, let's say, a third of them that are going to be kind of very into this stuff, very into the, you know, this 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 wokeness and whatever. But we're seeing it's a it's near a hundred percent of them. It's like you know every single one who's not, and you could count them on your hands. Right. So those people, um, generally, they're not 25, 30 years old. I mean, you know, you had some of these That's Silicon right. Valley types, but generally they're going to be 50s, 60s, 70s. They're going to be older. They didn't grow up with this. I, I don't – how much of it is that they believe in it and how much of it is, like you said, pragmatism, like – Heck, this is where the mob is. That's what they're going to demand. There's no counter mob. You know, I can never be too pro homosexual, too pro open borders, too pro criminal, too pro, you know, transgenderism, too pro whatever the latest hotness is. Right. I'm not going to get punished in that direction. Although in Florida, I think you're starting to see the results of where you have yeah. a counter um, culture against it. Is it is it pragmatism or is it no privately they believe in it, too? I think it's both. I think it starts with pragmatism. I think it, you know, not just cynical view, but I think it's first and foremost about how to, you know, build their brand and business in a way that they think will be appealing to the most, to the vast majority of consumers. And they live in bubbles. You know, I lived in San Francisco. I think 96% mm. of voters are registered Democrats. So they don't even know there's another view. In their minds, anyone who holds a view outside of this is a lunatic, is like an alt-right insane person, Nazi, to your point. Um, and so the fact that I, you know, kind of stepped outside of that orthodoxy or that bubble, even just like one tiny step to the, the you know, I'm not even going to say left or right because I don't want to make it a left or right sure, thing. I just not. stepped outside of it. And suddenly you are just the most evil person and you need to be banished. And to be clear, I agree with you. It's not a, a majority, but think about the, the chilling effect that had watching what happened to me for people. Cause it was pretty public right in San Francisco because the, the dragging happens online. Who's going to stand up and say, I stand with her. They see that my job is at risk. They see that I'm being called terrible, terrible names, unemployable names. I'm being penalized for things. My husband says, so it has this chilling effect. And, you know, I'm, I get messages every single day saying, I agree with you, but I can't say anything because I might lose my job like you did. And I can't afford to. Um, and, and, you know, that's the, the purpose, the banishment, um, you know, the firings, the banishment. I, I wasn't fired. I, I quit technically. Um, the name calling, it, that's what it serves. It serves to censor. And I should go back one, one, one second. Also, uh, one thing I didn't mention is, by wrapping themselves in this sort of woke cloak, um, you know, they 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 align themselves with with government. They align themselves with the press and they avoid any scrutiny mm. for whatever practices might be going on. And in some cases, those practices are perfectly legal, although one could argue unethical. Um, in some cases, they aren't. And again, look at Sam Bankman Freed. I mean, I can't mention <clears throat> this guy enough. He spoke yesterday on stage at the New York Times Dealbook Summit with Andrew Ross Sorkin, and the audience applauded him. Me meaning he's Bernie Madoff him. times 10, but he's not getting that treatment. No. And you know what? And and, and the press, which Andrew Ross Sorkin is a, is a part of, you know, they, they didn't scrutinize him for the last few years, um, which – you know, he clearly needed to be scrutinized. There were no corporate controls in place. I think it's obvious at this point that there is, is, is 
you know, fraud and criminality. We'll, we'll, we'll wait to see. But now the press continues to sort of go real easy on him because they are implicated. If they go hard on him now, how do they do that without saying, I was wrong, I made a mistake? And so it just gets furthered and furthered and further. And this, the problem at the end of the day, there's all the emotional parts of it and obviously the profiteering um, you know, that I talked about and this, this sort of expediency of taking these stances. But the problem at the end of the day is really there is no daylight between government, business, and the press. They're in lockstep. Mm. There is no daylight between the three. And that's what's really problematic. And ultimately, you know, the definition there is fascism. That's literally fascism because they could work together to censor any alternative views to sway the public. Apartheid, literally anyone that disagrees, drum them out of society and then government could take punitive action against you, and they all work together. And then obviously with Pfizer, government funds it, partners with it, patents with it, in the case of Moderna, uh, markets it, and then mandates it in a number of cases. Oh, and then absolves them of liability. And I think that's, that's the right. thing. It's like this is this really exposed the fraud of people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. They made their career off of – Oh, I'm for the little guy at these rich, greedy corporations. And then when you have the worst manifestation where the government and the world and the press and tech collude with something to violate your bodily autonomy that you can't have life, liberty, property, you can't have a kidney transplant if you don't get their thing that then turns out to harm people's bodies beyond the human capacity to imagine what it's done. And to this day, and, and no liability, no, you know, Toyota has, you know, an airbag that maybe one in a trillion is a problem. Boom. You know, yeah, recall it. We see that all the time. Yeah. Um, this thing, I mean, just the stuff that CDC's own data has, nothing, nothing. They, 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 they get to create even more products with even less data and less clinical trials. I mean, and they have no problem with it because- it's almost no. like this new set of ethos. We used to always agree what was right on right or wrong, and there were gray areas where there were kind of disagreements. Now it's like a new system. It's like if it's a spirit of the age item, it's all good. It is like you could literally do Nazi stuff while calling everyone else a Nazi um, if it's for the right cause. The funniest thing, New York Times had a great article two years ago with the masks – they're they're built off of the Ungur um, slave labor in China, <laughs> and they had right, no problem the with it. Yeah, That's the it's 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 because that yeah. is a symbol, you know. It's like a religious symbol. Um, how it much is. of this, I, Jen, is because right. of the decline of? Well, let me ask you this: Have the CEOs in America have they become less religious, or does that have nothing to do with it? You know, I think that's a great, great question. And I, I say this as a not religious person, so let me just mm -hmm. preface that. Sure. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do think it has a lot to do with it. I think America has it has become secularized. And, and I think that, you know, the religious impulse in us doesn't die just because religion is less popular. I think it's a human instinct. And I think we want a framework yes. to know how to behave and how to be good and how to be virtuous and how to be a part of the good group. No one wants to stand alone. People would rather be part of the group mm. and wrap themselves in virtuousness than actually be right and be virtuous and stand alone. And so I do think the decline 
um, in religiosity is a part of it because we still seek frameworks and we still seek heroes and we still seek, you know, religious leaders in a sense. And the fact that we could turn, I mean, it's so insane to me, corporate leaders who at the end of the day, all they want to do is make money. Do not let them fool you. The fact that we could turn them into the people that we worship as do-gooders. I mean, I was astonished during, during my, you know, contentious final two years at Levi's. At one point, uh, my boss, the CEO, sort of snapped at me that pharma leaders, pharma CEOs are the, the most values-driven CEOs there are <laughs> in the business world. And I was like, do you really believe that? I mean, how can you believe that? This is on the heels of the opioid crisis being exposed. And, you know, <laughs> everything we know that, that Purdue and everyone else followed suit, right? They, they created this non-addictive label, which, by the way, we know the FDA approved. So back to the no bright line. And they marketed this drug as non-addictive to drive sales. They did that knowingly. They knew it was addictive. They've killed hundreds of thousands of people. And yet... I have my boss, the CEO, saying these are the most virtuous business leaders in the world. It, I mean, it's astonishing. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth Warren loves can... Pfizer. It's it's the most bizarre thing. It it's bizarre. It it is. You know, I think to my dying days, I won't be able to totally explain it. But um, yeah, you know, it just it it, it does. I, I think the the I think you're right. I think the the secularization has a lot to do with it, and I think it, it it's not so much the lack of religion amongst the CEOs, um, but it's the lack of religion amongst the rest of us that allows them to believe in in these folks mm. as their heroes. And again, that permits the lack of scrutiny and all of it because they just sort of wrap themselves in virtuousness and goodness a la Sam Bankman Freed and Elizabeth Holmes and Adam Newman, the WeWork guy who was equally bad. <laughs> um, and they avoid any scrutiny from consumers, from their own employees and their own organization um, and, and, and from government and from the press, which is really, really um really disturbing as well. And, you know, my, my own company, Levi's, again, it's like this costume they wear. It, it's so protective. It's hard to know how, how to break through. But, you know, I'll give you an example. Under the cover of COVID, we laid off 15% of our workforce. In that same time frame, the CEO collected $42 million in stock payouts. But the layoffs, which were close to a thousand people, you know, the headlines were, were the, the layoffs were done with empathy. Well, I, I, I doubt those 15% of people who got laid off and found themselves without a job felt that there was all that much wow. empathy extended. And yet the fact that it was just said this way and, you know, again, kind of wrapped in this cloak of virtuousness, it was enough to convince people and nobody challenged it. That is that is astounding. That is a very powerful point because I think that observation, it's not like they're actually following the at least stated no. ethos of the traditional liberalism where, you know, you kind of have an egalitarian, you know, everyone earns the same or something. No, I mean, that side of capitalism, they'll take to the nth degree. But what you're saying is they put this protective costume on that, hey, but, you know, I'm going to ascribe to the, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to be a, a like a Sharia compliant practitioner of today's pagan theocracy. That's what I call it because it really is. It's a religion with a set of ethos, a set of dogma. You know, one of the things um, with my partner Steve Dace here, I, I said to him at the beginning of lockdown, I said, look, this can't go on too long because just, I mean, come on, these 20-somethings, they need their porn, they need their bars, they need their <laughs> stuff. I mean, in this case, uh, you know, because we're obviously big religious conservatives, but we said in this case we should be big allies because just the kind of libertine nature of what they want it shouldn't sustain it. But I was wrong. It turned out they were the most dogmatic practitioners of it. And I think yep. it's because of what you said. And I'm so glad to hear it from you. You say that you're you're not, you're not so religious yourself, but you recognize that when you're so devoid of religion, and that's certainly the case with Gen Z and that, that age group, that they're starving for a sense of belief, a sense of they, they want something to follow, and it, it gave them a whole, like, like literally, like, Sharia law. I mean, you got to be covered up, and you got to go here, and you can't touch this. And and it was it was shocking how they were willing. It's almost like this stoicism, which really I did not see coming from that generation. Yeah. Um, I didn't either. I, I agree with you. That was the most astonishing thing to me. Like, for young people, you're supposed to kind of go against like isn't that whole sort of definition at least in part rebellion you know you go against rules and you push back on the rules and they were the most compliant and I kept expecting to your point these kids to rise up to want their lives back I mean I think about myself when I was a young person I wouldn't have stayed inside you know just simply telling me I had to would have been enough reason for me to not want to like set the data aside and the fact that young people weren't even at risk I wouldn't have done it just because someone told me I had to. I mean, and this yet, is a little bit before yeah, your yeah. time and certainly my time, but but a generation above. I mean, the the baby boomers. What was the what was the slogan? Question authority, and and now it's like it's the opposite. It just shows no. you the the how dangerous this corporate structure is. That the like you said, the media corporations and government and global governments being all in one. I don't care what your belief is. That's never a good thing. Like, you know, no one could accuse us of doing that. Whether someone agrees with me or not, I have never advocated this needs to be censored. I'll make fun out of it. I'll debate it. I'll disagree with it. But sure. it's like you watch what's going on on Twitter with Elon Musk and it's like, okay, they come in and they say no one else could could say anything. I was kicked off. Fine. Elon Musk comes in, you expect, okay, well, now he's going to come in and kick out all of the people on the other. No, he didn't. He was just like, we're going to have it right. free. But to them, open and free is tantamount to fascism. Fascism is freedom, and freedom is fascism because their views cannot subsist. They cannot coincide. They cannot coexist, which is one of their favorite terms, with anything that disagrees with them. With any. Yeah, with any pushback, they can't withstand any scrutiny. Um, it, it's it's that simple. So they need to kind of banish anyone that pushes back. And I'm an example of that, right? I had to go. It didn't matter that it wasn't actually affecting the business, like they said it was going to. In two years, it didn't affect the business. Um, none of none of that mattered. If you if you challenge, um, you you've got to go because you. One, they can't defend themselves against the things you say because they have no argument. They just have this virtuous pose, this cloak that they wear. Um, and you risk upending the whole thing. But the, the, the crazy 
part is, is there are more of us. And, and that's why I, I wrote the, I wrote the book is people got to yes. screw up their courage, man. And they got to just say something, you know, I get no, emails and DMs every day from employees still that say, I agree with you. Why didn't you say something? You know, all, all he heard, the CEO was from a handful. Let's be clear. A handful of employees, of super woke employees saying I was a danger to the, to the world. And I was going to kill children and kill teachers. You know, I, I don't think it was very many people. Um, it's just a handful. But it's more than the people on the other side. Me. That's the problem that they'll That's have right. 10 it people agitate. And, and you know, right. like, like we had this with the masking in schools in private schools, let's say where you weren't even, let's say necessarily subject to regulation. Sometimes you were depending on the state, but, um, let's say you had the majority of parents didn't want it, but the minority that did were all vocal. And, and that, right. Exactly. It, that's the imbalance. And, and they're vocal because they feel like they're a good person. They've made this corporate right. media, cultural government cabal that makes it that it's safe to say that. Whereas what we want to say is considered unsafe. So everyone puts their head down. I mean, did you see people? Well, I, you're, see, you didn't live in a place that is really representative of the public either, so maybe it's not such a good question. No. But, but did you have people that were quite like, yeah, this is bull, but you know, well, you know, what could we do? Not, no, not in San Francisco. And you're right; it's yeah. not representative of the public. Um, yeah, I mean, I literally had no one in San Francisco except my husband. It was like the two <laughs> of us against the world. Um, Here's the crazy thing now, and, and this is why I just I, I am going to be really persistent ab about encouraging people to stand up in their everyday lives and just say one thing, push back on it. The math, if your parent teacher conferences still aren't in person, which they aren't in schools across the country, say something. If they don't hear from you, they think you agree and that you're OK with it. When I quit my job very publicly on February 15th, that very same day, three members of the San Francisco school board were recalled by a decisive margin. Mm. They were recalled because they failed to open the schools. That is the reason. They sat around dilly-dallying and talking about renaming schools, schools like Lincoln High School, named after Abraham Lincoln, schools like Diane Feinstein Elementary, like her or don't like her, she's a sitting senator, they, and, and there's a school named after her. So they spent hours upon hours doing that. They didn't open the schools, and they were recalled. 70% of the people that showed up to vote recalled these people. So I was not truly in the minority, at least not towards the end of the time frame. They showed up at the ballot box, but they won't show up in their everyday lives publicly where people can see and hear it because they're afraid of the repercussions. But we're, I just don't think we're as tiny of a minority that believes what we believe as um, the current sort of landscape would 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 have yeah. folks believe it's and a mile wide and an inch deep and it's going to take people right. like you to be a traitor to their class in order for this to end and this is why this is so important i really appreciate you sharing your story what a terrific story um terrific sacrifice but you know what i mean now you have more time with your kids and um you know life's not all about I mean, that, that's the thing. It's funny. Like, it's, it's a really a weird thing how we're all changing alignments in our political uh, allies and everything. Like, I was regarded for many years as, oh, you're one of those, you know, uh, all for the rich and you hate the poor and this and that. But no, we were always about that there's much more to life than just 
making money. And it's the irony is that the ones who call themselves the most progressive are the ones that are are all about greed and the bottom line. And, yep. and this is just the facade or sometimes a facilitator of that money. I mean, the yeah. amount of money that's made off of the pharma stuff is just uh, crazy it's and the and tech and everything. But this is where it is. So again, the woke mob took my job but gave me my voice. Available on Amazon, but I encourage people to go to levisunbutton.com at Jennifer Say on Twitter as well as um, her Substack. I see you you write there pretty often. Um, I really look forward to having you back again. What a terrific find! And thanks so much for sharing your story with our audience today. Thank you, Daniel, for having me, and thank you for your voice. Take care. So once again, I go late with a terrific guest, so I don't have time for anything else today. But that was so important because that is the core of where this is it, it, this is headed. We're all at a at a logjam here. What do we do? It's Republican or Democrat, and they're all on the same side, and where do we go? But it's this sort of rebellion in the culture, the corporate culture, that's going to be the undoing of this. And yes, it wouldn't help, it wouldn't hurt to have uh, political leaders who did this. You see in Florida how it's a mile wide and inch deep. The minute you make it clear that the culture is going to be the other way, or at least it will be an even proposition, you know, they'll back off. At least some of them will. Um, really amazing story. You think about it, someone who, you know, was all about, you know, being a, a female corporate executive and everything and could have been CEO one day of Levi's and, you know, she, by her own admission, lived in San Francisco, was not religious, isn't religious, um, and I'm glad to hear that. And the reason why I'm glad to hear that is is two things. Number one is it was very powerful that she disclaimed that and then literally agreed with me that, yeah, I mean, people don't lose that void to search out for spirituality, and then that's why they land with uh, uh, land into the wokeism, which is a greater religion. And I think that's another lesson that we think we need to back off of America's Judeo-Christian heritage. But the reality is if you're offering you know, a young generation a bunch of bland nothing and then they're offering a very definitive, actionable um, set of ethos, you know, where do you think they're going to go? You have to counter that with something as definitive. Um, and that's what I think has taken over. I think the secularism has really gotten these people because it's not just pay for play. Th th there's that. There's the pragmatism. There's all of the elements she mentioned. But I think there is a genuine sense that they need to feel good about themselves. And, you know, being part of the spirit of the age, um, you know, being a deacon in the church of pagan theocracy is how they put on this protective coding that shields their greed and, and it's real greed. See, we just believe in capitalism as a way of, you know, prosperity, but on an individual level, we're all about charity. These guys are the opposite. <laughs> they're, they're the true greedy ones. The progressives are, are the real ones. And, um, you know, the fact that she was just willing to give that all up is, you know, speak out for, for kids is, is truly unbelievable. And I just want to close by saying, um, I thought I read somewhere that she voted for Elizabeth Warren, in 26 that, that's Jen I, I could maybe I got that wrong but you know you could tell she's not the prototype of a lifelong conservative she, she might have been a little bit of a nuanced progressive but my point is think about people like Jen now she is unique being in San Francisco and having been an executive that high in a company like that but 
she's not unique in terms of people like her in different locations and different vocations all over the country that maybe were traditionally more Democrat, um, but it doesn't have to be this way. And there's a new emerging movement around parental rights, around individual freedoms, anti-wokeism, anti-elitism, that I'm telling you, if you broke out of that shell of the GOP <coughs> and you had a truly independent party, it would not just serve the conservative base, which is homeless, but so many other people would be willing to, to um, launch into that. I can't tell you how many people like Jen have been attracted to my branding, my way of thinking, my messaging, but you know, obviously a Mitch McConnell Republican Party and a Kevin McCarthy Republican Party is not going to win them over. Just something to think about that you know, this is really if we had an independent movement, we could upend the system, but unfortunately the people we need to do that are are bought for and paid for, but you know what? Those traditional conservative movement people are a joke. It's people like Jen, some of these, you know, this truly bipartisan uh, medical freedom movement. I think this is the future. The conservative movement is dead. It's meaningless, and those old fossils need to be put out to pasture, and they could go and have a broke-back relationship with Kevin McCarthy, and that's fine. But we're going to do what we do. Um, tomorrow we're going to have uh, Senator Johnson on to discuss his future plans fighting COVID fascism, the Lone Ranger. Let me know your questions for him. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.